If you happen to catch part one of this video series, we discussed how the UFC light heavyweight title came to be and followed where the belt changed hands inside the UFC. Which for context on the history of the UFC's division is a great place to start on this. How this video differs though is that it follows the lineal journey of the division. And by that I mean it counterintuitively goes outside of the lines. Meaning that we're starting from the very first light heavyweight champion or who was then called lightweight and follow that person until they lost whether they were in the UFC or not. Essentially, the idea is that whoever wins the belt is the champion until they lose. Trust me, you'll get what I mean as I go along. But the challenge is definitely going to be breaking this down. There are so many different paths that hit a dead end. So explore all those options, and only one of them really leads us back to the UFC light heavyweight title. And some even lead to welterweight? Pretty strange, right? I'll do my best to make sure it all makes sense for you though, so don't worry. I'm Jason from MMA on Point, and this is called Part 2, The Incredibly Disjointed Lineal Story of the Light Heavyweight Title. Chapter 1, The Prologue. So as I mentioned in the first part of this series, when weight divisions were first introduced at UFC 12, there are only two weight classes, 200 pounds and over in heavyweight, and lightweight, which as opposed to 155 pounds like it means today, only meant under 200 pounds. And over time, this would eventually be renamed light heavyweight and minor adjustments would be made like 205 pounds instead of 200. And the first person to win a tournament in lightweight history was Jerry Bolander. He wasn't the only one to win a lightweight tournament before the belt got put in place though. Guy Metzger also won a tournament. And then the next division tournament, neither Jerry Bolander or Metzger would compete in that while lightweight was renamed to middleweight, and Olympic gold medalist Kevin Jackson won that tournament. He then was matched up against Frank Shamrock for the first belt in the division's history and lost. So if you're trying to think about this linearly, this is actually a bit of a problem. Do you consider the first tournament winner the champion of the division or the first true belt owner? So this is where things get a bit complicated and creates multiple options to follow. So let's investigate each path and see where they each go. Chapter 2, Shamrock Retires. First, we'll follow Shamrock's lineal journey as the first logical choice, right? He first won the title against Kevin Jackson at UFC Japan with an armbar in 16 seconds. He would then go on to defend his title four times, dominating the division and having his masterpiece fight with Tito Ortiz. And a side note, there is a random rings fight that he had that went to a draw with Tamura, but it was just a draw. You don't win belts off of a draw, so it stayed in Frank Shamrock's hand. So after the Tito Ortiz fight, though, Frank Shamrock quote-unquote retired. And as mentioned before, the real reason was just to get out of his contract with UFC so he could fight elsewhere. And then following the lineal path of the title, he would fight in K1, WEC, and Strike Force, winning each time but then he lost to Henzo Gracie, which by then was fighting at middleweight or 185 pounds. And the reason he lost is because he actually used illegal knees on the ground and was disqualified. And so then Henzo became the lineal champion, and this is where it gets pretty weird. Henzo signed with the UFC just after and dropped down to fight Matt Hughes at 170 or welterweight, and got TKO'd by Matt Hughes. So just like that, we're two divisions lower than where we started. Went all the way down from what was essentially light heavyweight or what was called lightweight at the time, down to middleweight, and now we're at welterweight. And right at this time, Hughes was going into his last fight with BJ Penn where he got knocked out at UFC 123. BJ then went on to fight John Fitch, where he had a draw. And again, you don't lose titles on a draw, so technically he would have retained it. But you'll be surprised on who he fights next. Wait for it. Newly signed Strike Force champion at UFC 137, Nick Diaz. So, of course, Nick Diaz goes on to put on a masterclass in boxing in that fight, but then he loses to Condit just after. 
and this is where it hits a dead end with GSP. Of course, GSP hasn't lost since Matt Sarah, and at the time of this video being made, he'd already relinquished the middleweight title, so it's unlikely this will ever get back in the hands of a light heavyweight, especially if GSP retires because of his colitis or something like that. So that's option one crossed out. And before we get too into option two, which was with Kevin Jackson, he of course lost to Frank Shamrock, so that leads us down the same path, which leads us to our next option, chapter three, the Sandman. So before Kevin Jackson, there was another guy who'd won a lightweight tournament, Guy Metzger. This happened at UFC 13, and it happened against none other than future light heavyweight champion Tito Ortiz. It's really noteworthy to say that it did happen in controversial fashion, though. As Guy Metzger was taking a beating on the ground with knees to the head, many contested that Metzger was tapping, where Big John McCarthy believed he was simply extending his arm to defend himself. So that was a bit odd, but in another odd move, McCarthy stopped the fight to check the cut on Metzger's head while he was being attacked on the ground with knees. Furthermore, he restarted the fight, but instead of restarting in the position they were already in, he restarted on the feet, which by today's standards should have been reset on the ground. Either way, what did end up happening is shortly after restarting, Tito went for a takedown and was quickly caught in a guillotine. Metzger had won. And so then after this, Metzger would go on to fight the legendary Matsukatsu Fanaki for the second time in Pancrase a few months after UFC 13. A man who had defeated Boss Rutten, Ken Shamrock, Frank Shamrock, and of course had already beaten Metzger back in 1995. Amongst a crazy exchange of submission attempts, Funaki snagged a quick triangle slash armbar to sub Metzger about four minutes in the fight. Funaki would win four more times within Pancrase before the two would face off again for a rematch a year later, and this time Guy would avenge his loss and win by unanimous decision. This was also for the king of Pancrase title at the time, so it was a big honor. But in his very next fight, he lost to kickboxing great, a man who he'd already beaten, Semi Schilt by TKO. I know this is getting confusing because Pancrase fighters were so active during this time. Schilt, for instance, fought seven times in 1998 alone, where he actually knocked out five different people in Pancrase. So I think people are used to thinking of palm strikes and thinking it's a little less dangerous, but people were still getting knocked out. So then Schilt fought a couple more times in the promotion, also knocking out Funaki with a body blow. Then he lost to Yuki Kondo, and shortly after they would fight again in what was already their fourth match by then. All of them in Pancrase. Like I said, they fought a lot. And after a couple more years of winning and getting one draw, Schilt went on to test the waters in the UFC, where he quickly TKO'd Pete Williams and go on to lose to Barnett by armbar in round one. In Barnett's next two fights, he went on to first beat Bobby Hoffman and then the legendary Randy Couture. And just so you know how long ago this was, Barnett tested positive for banned substances in each of those fights and was even stripped of the belt he beat Couture for. But the first test he had failed before fighting Couture was only given a warning. You would never see something like that happen today. It's an automatic suspension. People even get four-year suspensions now. Thanks, Usada. Even still, though, those fights where he did test positive, they're still counted on his record as wins. And he went on for the next couple of years putting together a five-fight win streak, beating guys like Yuki Kondo and Semi Shield again. It was then, though, that Barnett faced the incredible K-1 import Mirko Krokop. He lost by a dislocated shoulder injury that caused him to tap earlier in round one. And just so you know, he ended up losing 
losing to Krokop twice after this. But from here, Krokop's next couple wins would lead to the legendary fight where he lost to Fedor. So if you've seen our lineal heavyweight title video, and so this leads us to Stipe Miocic, who just beat Francis Ngannou at UFC 220 for the heavyweight title. It's just an insane, crazy path that I recommend you watch if you would like to see the rest of that story. But it's clearly a dead end and doesn't lead back to light heavyweight. And with that, we've exhausted all of our other possible options. Finally, we can move forward to the last one. Chapter 4 the lone road begins. Basically, the only option left is the first lightweight or then light heavyweight equivalent tournament champion. And I'll admit this is a bit shaky of a premise. Going this route bends the rules a bit. For instance, if we go by this instead of the first belt holder, Frank Shamrock, then you have to apply that logic to heavyweight as well. Vitor Belfort was the first heavyweight tournament champion. Before then, it was just open weight. And this also happened to be on the same night as Coleman winning the first heavyweight belt. So this creates all kinds of problems. But this is the most complete journey with Jerry Bolander, so just go with it. It's supposed to be fun anyways, right? And so as I just mentioned, the first champion was Jerry Bolander, beating some poor asshole named Nick Sanso who would never fight again. Just a one-in-one -one career. After winning the tournament, Bolander then left the UFC to fight a guy whose name you might remember, future UFC 185-pound champion Marilla Bustamante where he'd lose by KO with an upkick. Don't hit on the VHS quality. Bustamante then went on a hiatus for the next three years, staying active, competing in ADCC jiu-jitsu tournaments before coming back in 2000 to arm triangle Yoji Anjo at UFC 25 and then Sine Kakuda and Pancrase before running into Chuck Liddell at UFC 33. Which rather instead of a TKO or a KO like you would expect, lost by unanimous decision. And from here we fall into a familiar timeline like the one in the first half of the series. Chuck wouldn't lose again until Couture and then Couture would go on to lose to Vitor, back to Couture, regained by Liddell and so on all the way until John Jones. And that's where it breaks again because John Jones never lost to DC. It was ruled a no contest when his test sample taken at the UFC 214 weigh-ins was later revealed to have been contaminated. So from here on out, it's Daniel Cormier. And so here we are after looking at every different possible path that we could go down, and we find ourselves just a day after at the time of this recording of the title fight between Daniel Cormier and Ozdemir, where Cormier ended up dominating the fight by controlling him, even landing on the feet some before finishing him on the ground in the second round. So it's a fascinating journey that each of these pathways went. And sure, we weren't able to tie up this lineal journey like we were for the heavyweight division, but it's still very interesting to see which way they went, where they went, where those titles died, and where we are now. Hey everybody, what's up? It's about 1.30 a.m. Sunday morning, January 21st, and uh, I just got done watching Daniel Cormier versus Ozdemir, like a lot of you did, and Francis Ngannou losing to Stipe Miocic by five-round decision. So it's a very interesting uh, just kind of turn of events. And then, of course, there was Bellator, Rory McDonald uh, beating out Douglas Lima for the welterweight title. So there's a lot of stuff that happened over the night. So I guess that leads me to three different questions. So who do you think Daniel should fight next? Who do you think Stipe should fight next? And who do you think Rory should fight next? And then, of course, uh, there was also Rampage losing to Chell Sonnen. Uh, with a decision there. So pretty interesting stuff. All in all, a really fun night. Aaron Pico had an incredible knockout. So uh, before I just get to uh, recapping everything, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the video. Um, I also uh, just want to let you guys know the reason why I ended up posting this video today is because I originally said I was going to post it on Saturday before the fights, 
but the way things worked out, it was just going to be like five o'clock, like an hour before the fight. And that's what happens when you try to do a video in one day. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. So here we are on Sunday posting it. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please like and subscribe. Like always, really appreciate you guys. And we'll see you at the next video in a couple days.